those of you who haven't recognized it yet, I'm not Pastor Mary. Yeah? Some catch on more slowly. Uh, there aren't any announcements tonight, so if Pastor Mary were here and she was going to tell you what happens after the service, she would tell you. Downstairs and hugs over here and got that covered. And I'll be there for the hugs. Probably. Oh, yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> Makes me feel good. So there aren't any other announcements. We're going to... Uh, move the offering to later in the service, so we're going to spend a few minutes in prayer together now. Before I do, I want to give you a brief update. Most of you, if not all of you, know that our friend, your fellow student, Steve Okeo, was taken to the hospital on Friday. He is still in intensive care. He's very sick. Pastor Mary just returned there. She and some others anointed him with oil and prayed over him. It is a very serious uh, so I know that there have been many, I see Shirley, Vice President Shirley Hoogster is here, I know she was up there, there's been other students, other staff, uh, faculty who've been up there praying over him, praying for him, and uh, all of our prayers are needed. And so as you're living and moving around tonight and in these coming days, please remember Steve. His brother Joseph is here and is keeping watch over him. Uh, uh, Joseph's wife Irene had to go uh, back. And so now Joseph's there, and so just be praying for this entire situation. We serve a God who is the great physician. We, are, we serve a God who brings peace, a peace that passes all understanding. And so we're going to continue to remember Steve uh, in our prayers. So would you please join me in prayer tonight? God, we are so grateful that your mercies are new every morning, and that your faithfulness never comes to an end. God, as we turn the pages of Scripture, we see from the very beginning, back in creation, how you demonstrated your faithfulness to us, how you breathed life into us, how you rescued us from our sin, how you rescued the people out of Egypt and gave them a new place, a new and fresh start. And God, that isn't only true in the pages of Scripture, it's true in our lives. We have seen your faithfulness. We have experienced your goodness in so many ways. And so what else can we do but we come before your throne and say thank you. And God, even as we say thank you for all the blessings that we have enjoyed, we are so mindful of those among us and those uh, around us who have experienced such great pain and some loss. And so we pray for our brother and our friend Steve. God, you know his needs. You know how very sick he is tonight. And so, God, we entrust him to your care. We know that while some of the things that we hadn't planned, that none of them have come as a surprise to you. Steve's, uh, the pages in Steve's life have already been written. You know the full story. You know of his deep love for you and his devotion, of his commitment to serve you with every breath that he has. And so now, God, as he lays there in the intensive care unit downtown, we once again entrust him to your care, believing that you, God, love him even more than we do. And we pray that you will be merciful to him. We pray for his brother Joseph. We pray for his sister-in-law, Irene, and their family back in Kenya. We pray, Lord, that you would give them a peace that passes all understanding. God, would you, by your Holy Spirit, just hover over this family and make yourself known to them. And we know that there are others in our community, God, who have significant prayer needs. We think of those who have recently broken bones and are recovering, some with 
significant trouble. We pray, God, for each of them. You know their needs. We think of those in our community who uh, have family members who have been injured in car accidents, some just recently, and we pray for each of them. We pray that you would care for them, that you bring healing, that you'd bring peace to family members who are separated by many miles. God, would you watch over them? And Father, we are well aware that uh, the needs of this world extend far beyond our campus. We have watched as our uh, friends and uh, others who we know and some who we don't have been traumatized by the events in Boston this past week. And so, God, we pray that you would attend to all of the, the needs that, that we have seen, and there are so many that we have gone unseen. We pray that you bring for healing for those who are still hospitalized. We pray that you would bring peace and a sense of comfort to those, God, to so many who have been, whose lives have been turned upside down by the events of this past week. And Lord, now as a nation, as we move beyond and as we ask questions about what does justice look like, what would it mean to forgive, God, we pray that you would stretch, that you would increase in us the capacity to understand your commands, your calls for how we live and how we treat one another. And now, Lord, as we turn to your word tonight, we pray, Father, that you would send your spirit upon this place and that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see minds to understand, that our lives might be transformed, shaped, changed into more of what you long for us to be. And we pray all these prayers, not because we are righteous, but we pray them for the righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, tonight we're going to continue in our series of, called What If It's True? And I have to tell you, I'm really excited about tonight. This message for me goes back almost a year. It goes back to the last commencement when one of our distinguished alumni spoke at commencement and he told the story about many years ago when he was a student at Calvin College. He had these friends who kept asking him, what if it's true? John, what if the pages of Scripture, what if Jesus' words in the Gospels, what if they're actually true? And John kept saying to them, what do you mean if they're true? All of his friends had been raised in the church. All of them were attending a Christian college. He's like, what do you mean if they're true? Of course they're true. We all believe they're true. That's why we're at a Christian college. Don't you get it? John had this seed planted in that question. This seed planted in his mind, this question, what if it's true? What if it's true that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness? That's true. What if it's true that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. I wonder for how many that might change the way we thought about Christmas. But he kept asking these questions, what if it's true, what if it's true? And so that was a conversation with our staff and campus ministries and we said, what if we had a whole sermon series on what if it's true? And tonight we turn to that question, what if it's true that God calls us to care for the poor? So I want to invite you to open up your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 25, page 807. And we're going to be flipping around a bit tonight, so if you're somebody who likes to know where we're at, keep your Bibles open. I'm going to, I'll give you time, but we're going to move to, through some different passages of Scripture tonight. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. 
All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people from one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it for me. Then he will say to those at his left, You that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not give me clothing, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not care for you? Then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. When I was in seminary, I had a college professor that began the first day of class doing something that no professor or teacher had ever done. He began his class by saying to us all, I am going to tell you today, on the first day of class, what's going to be on the final exam. If you can imagine, all of us instantly are like, this is not just pass the syllabus out kind of a day. We are leaning forward, getting ready to write this down. Many of us are beginning to imagine all the things we're going to do in those days that we don't go to class because we know what's on the final exam already. (laughs) Know who we are. So we're all leaning in. He said, do you see the course objectives in the syllabus? And there was 10 of them. I said, yeah. He goes, read through those. It's like, okay. He said, that's what's going to be on the final exam. He said, what I'm going to do at the beginning of the course is I'm going to tell you what we're going to study. And then as we move throughout the course of the semester, we're going to study what I told you we were going to cover. And then we're going to get to the end of the semester, and I'm going to test you on, I'm going to give you an exam that's going to test you on all the things that we studied that today I told you that we were going to study. See how it's all going to line up? And many of us are starting to think, uh, we are not going to be able to skip every class. <laughs> we're going to have to actually show up for these. Well, in the text that we read tonight, we have Jesus uh, in his ministry here on earth telling us what's going to be on the final test. He says, in the future, you're going to, there's going to be a future judgment day. He's telling us what's going to happen in the future in a way that makes it seem like history. He said, at the end of time, there's going to be all people coming before the king, and they are going to be judged. And at that time, they're going to be separated into two camps. There's going to be the sheep, and there's going to be the goats. And it's going to be easy to tell one from the other. You see, this was such important teaching 
because there was a, a great deal of misunderstanding in Jesus' day about what, what were the marks of true faith. How could you tell if somebody had really had true faith in them? We see this in a passage of Scripture we looked at earlier this year in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, if you want to flip with me. Matthew 7. Some of your Bibles would just flip right there. We spent so much time on it in the fall. 788. You see, there were people who thought that in order to have true faith, that you were going to be able to perform extraordinary things. So look at verse 21 of chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. So all of a sudden, everybody in the audience who thought, you know something, if you are able to perform extraordinary miracles, if you're able to drive out demons, if you're able to, to heal another person, you can sort of just sit back and relax and wait till the, the final judgment because your ticket is passed. That is the true mark of faith. And here Jesus clearly says, no, that's not it. We see a clue in chapter 6 of Matthew. Jesus is doing some teaching about prayer and about fasting. We find out that in, in verse 5 of chapter 6, Jesus says, And do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. Down a couple of verses, they say, And do not heap up empty phrases. You see, there were those who thought that a really impressive prayer life was a sure sign of True faith. And this over on the page in fasting, some thought that if you fasted and you contorted your body and face and let everybody know that you were fasting, that you were surely a really spiritually disciplined person. And those must be the things that mark true faith. Surely those people will gain entrance into the kingdom. Then we see at the end of chapter 23, Matthew chapter 23, Verse 23, page 805. Jesus, near the end of his teaching ministry, offers some harsh, critical words towards the religious leaders of the day. In verse 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. It is these that you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Jesus has some very harsh words to say. He said, you know, you're trying to follow the rigid outward parts of the law and you're doing it to the greatest extent and yet the intent the purpose of the law you're missing you're missing it i read that passage i i wonder how many of us have swallowed camels we've strained out a few gnats but we too have swallowed a few camels how do we measure true faith what do we believe are the marks of those who are assured of receiving and being accepted in the kingdom. As I talk with many of you, I, I listen for the answers, the things that you 
say to me when you're asked, what, is, what are the marks of true faith? And when I ask folks that, some say, they begin their answer by talking about their church participation. They talk about how often they go to church, where they go to church, how many events their parents made them go to church that they didn't want to go to, but they went anyway. Surely there had to be some points in that. Others, others begin their answer by talking about a prayer they prayed at a particular point in time and say, you know, I prayed this prayer and therefore this is the, the, the marker of true faith. I know it. I prayed that prayer this day. I can sort of relax. Others, others try to answer and they'll talk about their devotional life or their prayer life and say, well, I've got these really amazing habits. Surely these are the things that mark true faith, right? And yet, as I speak with, with some of you, I hear you, your answers and then you go on to say, but you know, our lifestyles, my family's lifestyle, my lifestyle, this doesn't, doesn't necessarily look very different from those around me. You know, there's those of us in the neighborhood who went to the Christian school and those who went to the public school, and we thought that there was this big marker between those kind of groups. You know, maybe Christian school's the marker of true faith. Some wonder. They say, you know, we go back to our homes, they look about the same. Our vacations, they look about the same. Our involvement in school and music and sports and everything else, that looks about the same. The similarities between our lives and those of our non-Christian friends, boy, there's just not many markers. Things ways to tell us apart. You know, our lifestyles are, are one way, is one way that we sort of reveal what we believe. There's an, another that, way that we reveal what we believe, and that's through our questions. I often meet with prospective students and parents that are considering Calvin College, and one of the things I always do is say, so what questions do you have? What questions do you have about Calvin College? How could I get, allow you to get to know this place better? You know something, you learn an awful lot about the things that people ask, from the things people ask. You see, our questions reveal the things that we believe. And there are some who believe that a true Christian college is measured by a few different things. Some are wondering, is this a real Christian college when they ask their questions? Some are wondering, does this place really take the Bible seriously? And then they follow up and they'll ask questions. And they'll ask, what's Calvin's position on spiritual gifts? I know what your position is on spiritual gifts. I'll know how to sort of map everything else out. What's your position on having women in positions of leadership in the church? And then I just point at Mary's office. That's a really short answer. That's the easiest one I get. Some will ask the question about what Calvin's position is on a whole variety of things. But the question behind the question is, is Calvin really a Christian college? The most common question today is, what is Calvin's position on homosexuality? I bet I get that question 10 times more often in this line of question than any other question. And what they reveal through their questions is what they believe really matters. Guess now how many times either students or parents in my five years of being a chaplain have asked me, I want to know Calvin's position on caring for the poor. Any guesses? One. Too high. Anybody else? <laughs> Zero. Not one question in five years. Questions that are asked reveal things what we believe. 
And then we have to wrestle with this. What does this mean? How do I go home each night, sleep in my well-heated, dry home with a fridge full of food, closets with more clothes than I could wear in a good long time, more clean drinking water than I could ever need, and then wrestle with this text. How can I... How can I think through this, the implications of what this might have for my life when I do a little bit of research and realize that there is more than a billion, 1.1 billion people, is estimated by the World Health Organization, don't have clean drinking water for today. 160 million people. 160 million people are sick as a result of preventable. 90% are children who are impacted. There's more than a billion people who don't have enough food to eat on a day. That doesn't even count the people who are underfed. One billion people. The statistics can be just mind-numbing and so overwhelming. But these aren't just needs that exist out there, right? It's not, this isn't just about developing countries in Africa or Asia or Central America. We've got significant right needs right here in our community. 83% of students who attend Grand Rapids Public Schools receive free or reduced lunch. They come from families that have an income level of a certain level that allows them. 83% right in this community. Our food banks and our shelters are in high demand. Prison numbers have never been higher. Incarceration rates have never been higher, even though crime rates can continue to go down, and that's a whole other sermon. We have tremendous needs that are around us that we see and so we're faced with, what do we do? How do we begin to respond to all that we see? How do we respond? I'm going to turn back to the text. It can be so overwhelming. The stakes can seem so high. I think it's important just to go back and read the words because Jesus makes it quite simple. He says, I was hungry, verse 35, and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Simple acts of kindness. As I read through this, there's three things that really jump out at me. Three things I just want to go over briefly. One is the list isn't optional. Jesus doesn't say if you want to or if it's convenient or this is sort of your choose-your-own-adventure kind of discipleship like you just pick three out of five. He says, no. You do these things. You respond this way. We know from earlier in, in the Gospel of Matthew, though, that this isn't about just checking boxes either. right? The danger is to start to think this is a works righteousness and if you just do these things, you receive entrance into the kingdom. The whole Sermon on the Mount was about becoming a new kind of person. Jesus repeatedly warns people, you know, you've heard that it's said, just don't commit murder, but I tell you, if you looked at, on anyone with anger, you've already committed it. You see, it's not just about following a rigid adherence to an outward law, it's about having your heart changed. It's about becoming a whole new kind of person. 
But when he says it's not optional, it's not about just checking off the boxes. It's about becoming a kind of person who can't help but care for those that we see around us in need. So it isn't optional. Caring for others, though, need not be complicated. It need not be complicated. Jesus mentions very practical day-to-day kinds of things, food and water, clothing, caring for someone who's sick, visiting someone who's in prison, things that we're capable of doing if we choose to. These are things that we have resources to do. We, can we feed everyone? No. But can we feed those that we come into contact with? Yes. Can we provide drinking water for people around the world? No. But can we do something here? Can we respond in some way? Yes. Three. So it isn't optional. It need not be complicated. And three, it need not be extraordinary. I don't know about you, when I first read this text, when I sort of first remember reading this text, I'm getting through the, the, the sequence and it's, you're hungry and food, water, give you something to drink, clothes, check, we can take care of that, we can give you some clothes. And I get to the end of the list and I see the line about somebody being sick and I think, surely here, Jesus is going to say, and you healed them, cared for them. And then I was sort of expecting you to get to the prison and it's like, and you broke them out of there. Yes. He says, no, you, just went, you visited them. You took what you had available to you and you responded in some way. It doesn't have to be extraordinary. It's taking what we have and responding. Now, some of you might be sitting here. I, I, this crosses my mind quite often and the needs are so great. And the thought is, where do I ever begin? I have a colleague who, who uses the phrase divine proximity. Divine proximity. And he uses that to say, where has God placed you? Who are the people that you know? What are the ministries that have come in, you've come into contact with? Where do you live? Where do you go to church? What are those needs? Respond to them. None of us can do it all, but certainly some of us can respond to the needs that God, through his Holy Spirit, brings across our path. And when those things come across our path, when those people come across our path, we have a a choice to respond or not to respond. We can't take care of everything, but we can respond to the needs that God brings across our path. Now, some of you might be saying, phew, what a relief. Because I don't live near any poor people. I don't know anyone who's in prison. All my friends are here and they're well clothed. I am off the hook. And you know the answer to that is inadequate. No, that's, that's not an adequate response. If you don't know people who are, don't have food or clean drinking water or don't have enough clothes to wear or are sick or in prison, you need to change. You need to change where you live. You need to change where you go to church. You need to perhaps start riding the bus. You need to start choosing the, the mire on Kalamazoo instead of Cascade. You need to find ways of having your path cross with other people who fit into the categories Jesus outlines here. Now somebody said, well, that's not, that's not easy. That's, I kind of like. If you cannot, with where you're living and how you're living, if you cannot hear the cries of people who are lacking these things, you need to change something. 
You need to move to a place where you can begin to hear the cries of people who are suffering. And I can assure you, if you live in a place where you can hear the cries of people who are suffering, you will respond. You will respond. God will empower you. So it, it is not optional. It doesn't need to be complicated. It doesn't need to be extraordinary. And if we want an example of what this looks like, we just need to read the pages of Scripture and see Jesus' life. We see Jesus approaching a woman, a Samaritan woman at the well and sparking up conversation. All the rules, social norms of that day said, that is not a place that you go. And Jesus went and he engaged that conversation. Jesus tells us parables like the parable of the prodigal, that when the son goes and leaves and squanders everything that he has, that the father who sees him off in the distance pulls up his robes and so he can run to greet his son and say, I told you so. Of course that's not what he said. He welcomes him back and returns him to the family. You see, when we read the pages of Scripture, we realize that so many things that we think are conventional wisdom and just normal rules of living, he shatters them. You see, we often defend our position by taking Scripture out of context, like a verse from 2 Thessalonians 3.10 that says, if a person doesn't work, he should not eat. It's taken out of context. You'll notice here, Jesus doesn't say anything about whether or not someone deserves the situation they're in. And if even we began to go down that road, we'd have to analyze carefully why was someone, what are the systems that are in place, social, political, economic structures that are in place that might push someone towards poverty. It's much more complicated. Here, Jesus simply calls us to respond. He says, this is the mark of true faith. So I began by telling you this story from last May. The person who I referenced, John, is John Boy. John Boy is a graduate of Calvin College. He was honored last May for being a distinguished alum. John Boy and a few group, a small group of students after graduation, after wondering about this question, what if it's true that God calls us to, the, to care for the poor? John and some of his friends moved to the west side of Grand Rapids to Roosevelt Park neighborhood. And they saw the needs of that local community of poverty and lack of educational opportunities. So we need to do something. So they started an after-school program. And this after-school program, over the course of six years, began serving 150 kids. But they realized that the impact that they longed to have and that God was calling them to, to invest in this community, it wasn't sufficient. So they said, we need to start a school. And that first year, they had 12 kids in a church basement they started a school because they had heard God's call. They had asked this question, what if it's true that God calls us to care for the poor? Well, today, uh, there's pre-K through 12th grade. Potter's House has an enrollment of 530 kids. 530 kids. And their goal from the very beginning has, to, is, has been to make a Christian, Christ-centered education available to anyone who wants to receive it. 65% of their students come from poverty. 61% of their students are ethnic minorities. They just wanted to break down all barriers and say this isn't about us and them, this is about us coming together to provide a quality Christian education for anybody who wants it. But it began with God prompting 
John and a few others to ask this question, what if it's true? Well, God doesn't just ask those questions of people who graduated many years ago. He asks people still today, right? And he still invites you, students, who your primary role is to be a student, but that also allows you plenty of opportunities to serve. And I've uh, asked Hannah to come forward. Hannah is very involved with service learning. She's been a part of it from, uh, for a number of years now here as a Calvin student. And so I want to invite her forward to tell her story about uh, how she got involved and how God has uh, provided opportunities for, to care for the least of these during her time as a student. So Hannah, come on forward. Can we give her a nice warm welcome? They're really nice. Yeah, it's fine. I know that. A lot of them are my friends. <laughs> uh, but I have what I'm going to say right now, so bear with me. Um, so as Aaron said, my name is Hannah. I am a senior international development and environmental studies major here. Um, I also work at the Service Learning Center um, as the community partnership program coordinator, um, which has just been a blessing for me. I was a CPC when I was a sophomore, so I really enjoy working with sophomores this year. Um, so through my major and working at the Service Learning Center, um, I've done a lot of these kind of activities, as you can imagine. Um, but I still feel like there's so much more that I could do, and I'm not an expert, so I was really shocked when I was asked to do this. Um, and I thought like it would be really easy because I've had so many experiences, but it was really hard. I have a lot to say about it, um, but I'm going to try and keep this short. <laughs> um, so as I began to think about my experience with caring for the poor and what I've learned through that tonight, um, I thought about what Pastor Mary shared last week about how being part of a, a church can be messy and complicated, um, but very worth it. Um, and I feel that caring for the poor is, is really similar to that, um, that it can be messy and complicated and we might not know how to do it well, but, you know, it's, it's something that we're called to do and it's worth it. Um, and I think because it's messy and complicated, we sometimes struggle to step outside our comfort zone to go and to serve. Um, so caring for the poor doesn't just mean loving brokenness that we see, like, oh, that's really sad, but it means entering into relationships with people um, whose lives are broken through building relationships and also realizing that we ourselves are broken and have places that we need to be served. This may seem like a really daunting task for a college student to enter relationships with others who are from different backgrounds than us and who have struggled with some really difficult things. Um, but it's quite simple because God is already at work um, in their lives, in the neighborhoods they live in, and in our lives. Um, so he is with us and, and is already working there. And this is a concept I think we forget a lot when we go to serve, that God is already present and God is already working and that he will use us however he wants in um, how we're caring and serving. And so it doesn't matter really what we do. God will take care of it, and we don't have to go into a service or caring for the poor thinking, oh, I'm a superhero, like, I'm going to save the world. No, like, God will take care of it, so he can use whatever skills we have. Um, 
And also the Service Learning Center is a good place to come <laughs> if, if you have questions about like how to get started. Um, so my freshman year, I got involved with a dorm partnership, um, going to Roosevelt Park CRC to do ESL tutoring, um, which was only a two-hour time commitment a week for me, which was perfect. So I had plenty of time to keep up with schoolwork. Um, but it was a really big service and very valuable um, to the people that I was serving. Um, it was really incredible to see how these people, these um, Hispanic immigrants, progressed through the semester, even if it was like simply just how they were able to pronounce English words better or finally understand an idiomatic expression that they had a question about, like, what does this mean? Um, and through it, I, I learned how hard and like often confusing the English language is um, through this tutoring experience. Um, it was also kind of difficult sometimes. I didn't always want to go, and I'd never felt adequate. But I feel like God still used me in that experience. Um, I also learned a lot. Um, during my sophomore year, we saw a dramatic drop in the number of people who were coming to be tutored. Um, and when I asked Pastor Pablo, like, what's going on? Why isn't anyone coming? He explained that there had recently been an immigration raid um, in the neighborhood so that people, even those who were here legally, were kind of scared about going out and about in the neighborhood and coming, and maybe even coming to ESL tutoring. Um, and that really like struck me and, and affected me. Because um, if I had just read about the raid on the newspaper, or heard it on the news, like it wouldn't have meant much to me. But because I was serving regularly in the neighborhood and knew people in the neighborhood who probably knew these people who were um, taken, and deported, like, it meant a whole lot more to me um, that I could join in their sadness and their fear with them through the relationships I had um, built with them. So this is just one way I've been involved and, and experienced this. Um, and through working in the Service Learning Center, I hear about new opportunities every week. Um, and most don't take a huge time commitment. They're really easy things to do. One to two hours a week or a special Saturday cleanup project. It's, it's easy things for us to do. Um, so that's all I have. So thank you so much. Thank you, Hannah.
about three or four inches, they, would, they were gluing it together and they were taking braces to reinforce it, to bend it. So it starts here and then it's coming down and this piece of wood was coming and bending. And I was thinking about this passage about the reason we don't do many of these things is because it's hard. And if we are left to our own devices, we are straight. We move in the directions, the things that are easiest and most comfortable for us. And I was thinking about what if, what if we're like that piece of wood that's being shaped and formed on this spiral staircase and it needs, const- it needs lots of glue and it needs lots of reinforcement every few inches because if you don't reinforce it and if you don't glue it, it's going to go back the way that it was. And I don't know about you, but if I don't have God's Holy Spirit at work in me and if I don't have community like the church around me, like Pastor Mary talked about, I will go back straight and do it my way in a heartbeat. And that maybe what we need is God's spirit at work in us and the community of saints around us so that we can be shaped and molded and formed like that piece of wood on that spiral staircase. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, I am convinced that Jesus' words are true. And I'm also convinced that God's spirit is at work in my life and bending me and shaping me in ways that I don't always like or want to be, and yet I sense through the peace that he provides that it's him at work, and so the discomfort is like, he's just saying like, just trust me on this. And so tonight, I want to pray for all of you and pray for all of us that we would be receptive to the ways that God is at work in our lives and that we'd be attentive to his spirit speaking to us. And when we first hear what we might be asked to do and think, well, I'm not interested in that, God. That would be hard or uncomfortable and it would sort of like completely mess up my plans for what I had planned next week or next month or five years from now. That we'd be quiet. So I want to invite you to, right now, just to open your hands. Your hands, set them on your lap. as a sign of submission. And I don't know what God has in store for any one of your lives, but I know that he has something in store for you and I know that he is at work in our lives and he wants to to bend us and shape us and mold us. So God, I just want to pray that all of us gathered here tonight as we open our hands to you, that we would be receptive, that we would be, allow ourselves to be molded and shaped, that we would be convicted that your words in Scripture are true, that we are called to care for the poor, that to the, for the least of these. And so, God, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see those in our community and around the world who have significant needs. I pray, God, that you would open our ears, that we would be responsive, that we'd be able to hear their cries and not move about our days and our lives unaffected. I pray, God, that you'd open our hearts, that you would increase in us the capacity to care and feel compassion and empathy for those who are hurting. That we'd ask ourselves, what would we want someone else to do if we were in their situation? So Holy Spirit, just come in this place and be at work in us. We long to be more of the people that you have designed us to be. Holy Spirit, come. We pray this now through the powerful name of our Savior Jesus Christ, the one in whose footsteps we walk. And all God's people say together,